We have this lovely lady right here who you see singing all the time. And for those of you who are visitors don't know that she hasn't always been up here because she was in a foreign land. And so she's going to tell you something about that and give us an update. Her name, me, Reagan. Her name is Reagan, Reagan Taylor. Well, it will be for another couple of weeks. And then uh, some things are going to change. So she'll give you some updates on that as well. Yes, okay, great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll move out of the way of the pictures. Uh, my name is Reagan Taylor, and I was living in Thailand um, as a missionary with Avant Ministries uh, with a team for three years. So I just got back in October, or October, in March. <laughs> um, so yeah, I want to tell you some stories about what we did. So I went with the team. We studied language, the Thai language, for one year in a city called Lopuri, and then we moved down to a city in south-central Thailand called Cha'am. And um, we did ministry there, so our goal was to plant a church in a place where there was not a church. So we went with the goal of getting to know people and just doing ministries to help people know who we are and uh, why we're there and just share the gospel with them and hopefully see them come to Christ and then see them gather together as a church. And then um, as they grow, to reproduce and and produce more churches, whether in that city or in other cities in Thailand. So you can go back to the the other slide, Dad. Uh, Nope, other one. The second one. Nope. Backwards. Other way. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. Okay. The second slide. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Okay. So I just want to tell you a couple of stories of some of the people that we got to meet. Um, so this woman in the yellow shirt, her, her name is Da, and she um, knew one of our Thai friends who was a Christian, and she asked that person, why are you so happy all the time? And this person said, because I didn't know God, and he made me happy. And she said, what does that mean? And she said, I don't know. I'll invite my friends to tell you. And so we went over to go visit her, and we brought some of our Thai friends with us who were a little more mature <laughs> in their faith and could share a little better. And um, so she told us about her story. She had a lot of just hardship in her life. She was separated from her kids. Um, she wasn't able to find work. She had tried to commit suicide at one point and wasn't able to. And um, you can't see in the picture, but there's a table behind her that was just covered with all these different idols and um, just kind of like spirit houses, which is, they're Buddhist in Thailand, so a lot of spirit worship and things like that, trying to make merit and do good things. Um, so she told us, all I ever do is, is pray to these spirits and give them things, and they never, all, all I do is suffer. They don't answer any of my prayers, and I don't know why. And so one of our friends told her, why don't you try praying to God and see what happens? And she said, okay. So <laughs> we went over uh, the next week, and we brought another Thai friend with us, and that, and that woman shared about the gospel and how she could become a Christian. And um, da, she's, uh, the woman asked, do you want to be a Christian? And, and Da said, sure, whatever it takes to relieve my suffering. And so she did, and um, God totally transformed her life. She became such a joyful person. God was, was blessing her um, like physically and financially, but also just in her heart, was, was she was totally changed. And so everyone who knew her before just said, why are you so different? How, are, how have you changed so much? You're so happy now. And she said, God is great, and he's transformed my life, and here's how he can change your life too. And so she became a huge evangelist. In the next slide, um, you'll see one of the friends in the, with the short hair um, against the wall. Her name is A, and um, she led her friend to Christ a couple weeks later. And uh, A um, is married, and she wanted her husband to know Jesus too, but she was kind of afraid of that interaction, what would that look like sharing with him. So she shared a little bit and then just prayed for him, and then he became a Christian too a couple weeks later. So the next slide, you'll see the two of them with, with me. So her name is A, and then that's me, and then that's me, <laughs> is, uh, is the, 
the man's name. So they're awesome. We love them so much because they've been super helpful to us with um, translating. You know, we're, we can speak a little bit of Thai, but they are Thai, so they can speak better Thai than we can. And um, they help uh, disciple new believers that, that we meet. So we're really, we love them a lot. Um, in the next slide, you'll see, um, in, so that happened all about uh, July of, and August of last year, so a year ago. And then um, by November, we got to have our first baptism service. And we did it on the beach. Uh, we live in kind of a, a beach touristy town. And um, we wanted to do it in the ocean, but there were jellyfish, and everyone was scared. And so we did it on the beach instead. So um, that was really cool. We got to baptize about six people, and um, we had people come and support and pray over them. And in the next slide, you'll see that we um, started meeting together the next week for church on Sunday. So we meet in one of my teammates' houses every week, and the group um, has been meeting there for about six months now. I just had their six-month birthday pretty, pretty recently. And um, they still meet together. So the, the group has shrunk a bit, um, and they've, you know, as churches experience, there are some hardships and decisions that are hard and, and disunity and things like that. And so they would love your prayers just for strength over the church as they um, grow in their faith, but then also grow in number as well. If you could pray for them, they would love that, and the team as well. Um, in the next slide, uh, you'll see I met a man while I was there, and <laughs> we got engaged, and so we're going to get married. And um, so David is my fiancé, and he served in Thailand as well at a, in a different city in Bangkok. And he's from Orange County. Um, so we're going to move there after we get married next month. So um, our next kind of phase, before we left Thailand, we both really had a burden um, for kind of bridging the gap between the mission field and the local church in, in the next slide, which is super informative. Um, we wanted America not to just love America, but also to love other countries and love the gospel and Jesus in the world. So we um, both just had different burdens. So my burden is very much for the missionary and the local church um, and the missionaries who are sent out because a lot of times missionaries will leave their home and they, um, there's just a disconnect in communication. And so like a lot of missionaries feel like they don't, are not uh, really receiving a lot of updates from their church, and the church has no idea what the ministry is that's happening overseas. And so I really want to be able to stand in the gap um, and help communicate missionary stories back to churches so churches can support with prayer and, um, and just encouragement, not just money, but, but also these ways that make them feel still connected. David's really excited about sending more people to the mission field. You know, Jesus says in the Bible, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. You know, spoiler, spoiler alert, at the end of the Gospels, he sends his disciples out, not to just stay in Jerusalem, but also to leave and share the Gospel. So David really wants to help equip people to be missional in their home communities, um, but also to go, to go to other countries where the, people don't know the name of Jesus. And then we also want to just serve really practically in our local community. And so we're really excited um, for that, and God gave us an opportunity to do that kind of work as a missions sort of coordinator at the church where we'll be attending in Orange County, which is Trinity um, Presbyterian. Um, we kind of branded ourselves, and you'll see in the next slide, we call ourselves how to be missionary-ish. So the idea that like missions isn't this perfect cookie cutter sort of thing, and we're all called to be missional, and so that's, that's the ish part of it. We're all called to be this way, not just like special Christians who go and serve in Thailand or whatever. Um, so we're really excited for that. We want to be able to serve the local church in Orange County, but we also want to share things that we're kind of learning and doing and teaching um, with other people everywhere. So we kind of have, we built a website and we're going to share some of that stuff there. Um, so part of this ministry that we want to do, you'll see the next slide. Uh, that's kind of what I just said already. So this, these are kind of our, our main three focus points. Um, in the next slide, part of how we want to um, equip people is to take them on vision trips to, to people um, and, and missionaries in other countries where they are serving and planning churches right now. And so we'll be leading a mission trip um, back to Thailand this October, and we are inviting all of you who want to come. 
all of your friends who, are, who could ever be interested possibly ever in going to the mission field and just want to kind of see what could it be like. What are, how can God use my gifts and talents, or even if I don't have any gifts and talents and I just want to see, um, we want you to be able to go and just see what could that look like. So we're going to go to Bangkok, which is where David served. We're going to meet with his church in the next slide and um, see some of the ministry they've been doing and um, see some different organizations people have worked. They can, they can use their accounting skills or their art skills or whatever and still be missional doing those, those sort of professional sorts of things. We'll also take a trip down to my city, Cha'am, and um, you'll get to meet the church and you'll get to meet my team. And they are recruiting right now. You don't have to feel pressured to join the team, but just to see what they're doing and see what God's doing in Cha'am. And this is the church. Um, so I would love for you to meet them and, and ask them questions and get to know them. And they can meet the people that have been supporting them and been excited and praying for them for the last three years. So I would love to take you guys. If you have any questions about anything um, about Thailand or, or anything that is going on, I would love to answer more questions. I think I'm out of time. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you, right here. Come up, we're going to pray for you. Yeah, if you, um, her heart, by the way, when she said, we'll get more into that in the sermon, so, uh, but we've been so blessed to be part of the Lord's work through her and, and, and then through David, and uh, there are different seasons in life and in ministry, if you've lived long enough, you, you know that, and uh, the Lord has brought them out of Thailand and is in, they're now in a new season of getting married, and it's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to continue supporting them. We're super excited to see what the Lord does in and through them in the next few years and also in their, in their lifetime as they continue serving the Lord. So um, let's just pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for Reagan's heart to answer the call to go, not just to go from her home or from her city, or from, but from her country, to go and to empty herself and be filled with you, to learn another language because of her love for you and her love for our lost people. I pray that you would bless her and guide her as she moves into, into marriage and this new season of ministry. Give them all that they need, Lord Jesus. Would you cause your face to shine upon them? Would you give them grace and peace? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you so much, Reagan. And if you would like to support their uh, ministry, I bet you could talk to her and she would be glad to give you information on that. So, I mean with money. You can pray for her, that's free, right? But if you, uh, the Lord's leading you to give, then... I was a missionary, so I know how it works. So, okay. Hey, everybody. Oh, kids. Hey, you're over there going. Please don't start to show me with me in here. So if you are an elementary age kid or below, uh, you can go through that exit right there. And if you are a middle school aged person, you can head out these back doors. If you're in high school or older, what, Jos? You need what? You want me to take it off? Okay. He doesn't want his tie on anymore. I feel him. So, okay, we're good. If you're in high school or older, that's my youngest, by the way, and that's Joe, so he's mine. Um, you're stuck in here with us. So, we've been going through the book of John, and uh, Treb, our lead pastor, he and his wife, are, they're picking up their kiddos from camp today, so they could not be here, and, uh, but we're, we're just glad that you are here today. So we'll be in chapter 17, starting in verse 9. And just to, uh, to give a little bit of background, so we've been marching through the book of John, and we're in week 60, I don't know, 60-something, and we're now in, in, uh, at the end, really, of, of Jesus's uh, earthly ministry. The cross is just right, just a few hours away from when he's talking right now. 
And we have just ended this, uh, this farewell discourse where he was teaching the disciples. And now we've entered into this time where Jesus is, is now praying for his disciples. In chapter 17, he prays for, he, uh, he's praying for these 11 remaining disciples who were there. And then later he'll pray for all believers. So in the context of this, as we read through this, some of this will apply directly to these 11 disciples. But much of it can be applied to, to all believers uh, in, in time. So as we are, are in here, the, the context is that, remember, Judas Iscariot has betrayed or is left to betray Jesus. He is no longer there. It is the 11 remaining guys in Jesus. He is praying for them. And we're going to look at some of what he is praying and asking his Heavenly Father to, to do on their behalf. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, we, we just come before you grateful, grateful that you love us grateful that you are you are God who sends you send people out into the world you send us out the front door you send us across the street and you are God who came who came to save us and so as we study your word today we we kneel humbly before your authority as as revealed in the word we do not come here to to talk about necessarily what we think the bible says but what it means and to to bow before you and in, in worshiping you by studying your word would you please open our minds that we would think well in our hearts that we would receive what you're teaching us would your holy spirit communicate the truth that you want us to understand today and would you help us to apply that truth to our lives that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would walk faithfully with you I pray for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. I pray for every person in here, and I ask that you would just teach them, Lord. Teach me. Teach everyone who's hearing my voice right now. Teach us who you are and grow us in Christ. In your risen and exalted name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 17, starting in verse nine. So I'll read through the passage and then we'll go back through and walk through it together. So he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who have given, you have given me for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So, what is Jesus saying? So, let's just start off with the reality where it says, I pray for them. Who is the them? It's the 11 remaining disciples that he's praying for. He's, he's, Jesus is praying over these disciples, these guys that he has been with for 
for three years and they have walked through a whole lot of things together and they feel like they're just kind of starting to understand who he is, right? And, and then immediately after this chapter, they're all going to desert him. But that's who he's praying for. And he says, it is Jesus asking his heavenly father these things on their behalf. And he says, I'm not praying for the world. So the world is, is always the, it is the system, but also the people that are outside of God's system, outside of God's economy, so as it were. And it is, he is directing his prayer to the heavenly father on behalf of these 11 disciples, not this world around them that hates them, but he's praying for these guys. Jesus loves the world. He loves the people of the world. But here he's not praying for the world. And it's interesting, he's very explicit there. And he says, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. There is a, make no distinction. I won't sit here for long, but that there is a great distinction in God's mind between those who are his and those who are not. There is a great distinction between the world and those who are believers and who are God's children. But he says, for those you have given me, Trev talked about this last week, for they are yours. This idea of us being God the fathers, it's not this sort of uh, slave master mentality, but it's this idea of fatherly possession or identification. Like when Joseph came up and I said, that one's mine, right? Like he's, he's my son. And so when the father, heavenly father looks at a believer, he says, they are my child. I identify them as mine. I protect them. I watch over them. Like all the things that a good father would do that God the Father identifies us as his children. And he says, all I have is yours in verse 10, and all you have is mine. So the first part of that, right, all I have is yours, I, I can repeat that. I could say, all I have is God's. Well, that makes sense, because I don't really, he's really the owner of all things, and, and, and I don't, it's all his. That's easy to say. The second half is super interesting, right? And then he says, all you have is mine. Remember, this is God the Son speaking to God the Father, saying, all you have is mine. That second half, I can't say that. All that God has in eternal nature, uh, absolute perfection, glory, I, I don't have that. But Jesus is saying this, and all you have is mine. It's this, it's this amazing idea of, of Jesus is declaring really that he has the same essence as the Father. And this whole passage we've been going through is very, very Trinitarian in nature, meaning it shows us a whole lot of the relationship that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have together. But when Jesus says, all you have is mine, it is this amazing claim to deity. It's not explicit at all. But he's saying to God the Father, everything you have, I have. It's a remarkable statement. And then he says, and glory has come to me through them, which I just find extraordinary because um, if anybody spent a week as a human, uh, you know we're, we're actually pretty unglorious. Uh, we, we tend to um, glorify ourselves and talk about how great we are and we put our pretty people on magazines. And, and, but, I mean, let's be honest, all the, all the pretty people, they all get old and die too. So we're not exactly these glorious, shining creatures. But Jesus says, glory has come to me through them. It's incredible that Jesus, the creator of all things, would say, these 11 hooligans, one of whom is, there were 12, and one of them went left to betray me. In about an hour, they're all going to leave, but glory has come to me through them. It's remarkable. It's really freeing to know that God is so good that he can bring glory to himself through us. 
In 11, he says, I remain in the world no longer. So Jesus is getting ready to be crucified, be resurrected, and go be with the Father, ascend to the Father. But they, these guys, they're not going anywhere right now. They're staying here, and I am coming to you. Then he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Some of your virgins may say, keep them in your name. And then he says, the name you gave me. So what is this name? I mean, he's not just meaning Jesus, because it's not just that protect them by Jesus. It's, when you have this concept of name, so we, we name our kids, and we try to name them either something cool or something that will push them to be great, like boy named Sue, or we have something like that, right? There we go. Somebody got the reference. So we have names for us are important, but in the Bible, they're enormously important. Like Jesus' name, God wasn't like picking Jesus out of a hat. Uh, we have names for him like Emmanuel. When God gives his name to Moses, he says, tell them that I am has sent you, Yahweh. We have uh, Jehovah, Jehovah, uh, Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, all these other names there are for God that describe something about his character. We have crazy names like, like Ichabod in the Old Testament, which means where's the glory, and all these names that sort of mean something. So when you see the word name, when Jesus says, by the power of your name, or keep them in your name, the name you gave me, it's always going to have to do with, with character, the character of the namer, and the mission of the namer. So when God is talking about name, he's talking about his character and his mission. Does that make sense? So when he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your character and your mission. By the character and the mission that you gave me, because Jesus went utterly in the character of the Father and utterly on the Father's mission. He had no other mission whatsoever. Why? Why did he want, why is he asking the Holy Father to protect him? Back up real quick to that word holy. So when we think of holy and the word, um, you'll see the word in here sanctify or, or um, yeah, the word sanctify or the idea of sanctification. People would call uh, uh, this worship space a sanctuary because it would be holy even though it's just a space in a building. But this idea of God being holy, that God is, we have there's sort of two ideas. One is that uh, holy is this idea of purity, of uh, he is unblemished, he is unstained by sin. Well, that is true. He is holy in that regard. But holiness also has this other meaning of being set apart, this set-apartedness, that God is uh, the the. The theological word is the transcendence of God. He is holy. Like we kind of throw that word around like holy father, holy God. But when we talk about holiness, like R.C. Sproul wrote this beautiful book, The Holiness of God, which is really deep and really great. And I totally recommend it, but you're going to have to gnaw through it. It's wonderful. But when we talk about God's holiness, it's really this idea of transcendence, which means that God is apart from this material world. He is not bound by its limitations. He, in his eternal nature, is above and outside of the limitations of the material universe. So God does not have to get tired. He does not have to figure something out. He does not get, none of those limitations apply to God. None of them. So when Jesus says, Holy Father, he in just those two words is explaining so much about the character of God. He is over, he is above us, he is outside of us, is the created universe. And yet he's a father. He is intimately involved in our lives. He's not some magic clockmaker who got things rolling and then just sits back and watches us all destroy everything. He says, protect them by the power of your character and your mission. 
so that they may be one. How? As we are one. So Jesus is going to, in, the, in, in verses 20 and following, he's going to really dig into that topic, so we won't hit it too much today. But just this reality that Jesus is asking his heavenly Father to protect the disciples so that they can experience unity like Jesus and the Father have unity. Now, obviously, they're not going to experience the eternal nature of the triune God, the unity that the, that the Trinity experiences, but they, we can experience this supernatural unity here on planet Earth that can only be explained by God. It says, while I was with them, these disciples, I protected them and kept them safe by that name, by my character and mission, and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. Then he says, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction or the son of perdition, if you got an old version, so that scripture would be fulfilled. So we're going to briefly touch on this because we read that and you may be like, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, well, it doesn't say his name, but I think it's obvious in the context, talking about Judas Iscariot, who had just left to go betray him. So he says, none has been lost except one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. So it brings a question. As we study through the Bible, we don't just skip over the hard part. So it brings up a topic, and it is the struggle between our understanding of the divine will and human responsibility, right? I'm not going to resolve that paradox for you today. So let's just lay that out because nobody has. So there's been lots of really smart people who have tried to figure out how those two things work. Anybody who's at all orthodox agrees that there is an unchangeable divine will, providence, sovereignty, all these things are played into that, that God's will cannot be thwarted, changed, or messed up by anybody. Over here, you have human responsibility, meaning that somehow humans have a measure of free will. Like, I don't have absolute free will. I can't just decide to become an eagle and fly to Toledo. Like, I can't do that. And so, our free will is limited. I know that's ridiculous, but uh, it would be cool, by the way, to become an eagle. But I, I uh, just say fly with soar with wings like eagles, but I, I can't do that. So I have a limited free will, right? Somehow these two things connect. And that Judas, the idea being that Judas freely chose to deny Jesus, to, um, in treachery, sell him to, to the, uh, the Jews who wanted to kill him. And that in the exercise the free exercise of his will fulfilled the divine will of God, okay? How that works out, this area in between, well, we don't know. That's why you get, you get groups of, of Arminians on the Wesleyan tradition. You get uh, Calvinists on one side and who say, well, there's this and this and there's this. The Bible doesn't explain it to us. God knows. I don't. What I do know is that our will is always subject to the divine will, meaning this. Why would Jesus say this to them? Why would he pray this out loud? I'm assuming he's praying it out loud in their hearing. Why is it important that these 11 disciples know that none were lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled? Well, because I don't think these guys know yet that Judas has betrayed Jesus. I don't think it's there yet. They're going to learn very soon. And man, as you see the writings later, as they write about him later, they're I feel like they're probably still harboring some bitterness against Judas, and I can, you can see why. But they are going to understand that one of their best friends denied Jesus, sold him, 
to the bad guys. That's what he did. They're going to need to know that even Judas, betraying Jesus, as awful as that did, could not thwart the divine will of God for Jesus to go and die on the cross for the salvation of all mankind and raise from the dead. That the human will, the, the free exercise of human will, cannot thwart the sovereign divine will of God. It is in it an unshakable tenet of the scripture. Because if a human being can do something and thwart God's will, well then that human is God. He then has sovereign authority and power that God does somehow not possess. This is why theology and what we think is so deeply important. But they're going to need the firm understanding that neither Judas nor Herod nor the people who are going to kill every single one of these guys for their faith could thwart the will of God in their life. That's enormous, right? We, they, we sing songs about it. You know, the, the gates of hell unleashed cannot change the will of God. That's deeply important for every believer to understand that. Because if God's will is just willy-nilly, if he's this all-powerful, all-knowing creature, and yet someone can kind of trump what he wants, we're in trouble. But he's not. He was going to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish always. And it matters in their lives. And it matters in mine, and it matters in yours. It may not explain the mystery. I don't understand it. If you figure it out, write a book. But that's the best as I can understand it at this point. He continues in verse 13 where it says, I am coming to you now. See, in Jesus' mind, the crucifixion is already done, and he is going home to his Father. Which is wonderful, the surety of that, right? All the things that have to happen that are totally out of Jesus' human control that have to happen in order for him to die and raise from the dead. He is sure of it, just as they were sure and certain that Jesus came from you, the disciples were in the previous verses. He says, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have what? Full measure of joy. So the idea being the word for measure, like you have a cup and you measure liquid or a dry powder or something into a cup. And if you have this cup that is so full, have you ever seen a cup that's so full that just the surface tension of the water is holding the water, that the water is actually domed over the cup? Have you ever seen that? That if you literally put one drop of water in there, it would pour out. That's what he's talking about. He says full measure. He means a container that cannot hold anymore. So when he says that they would have a full, the full measure of my joy, he actually means that. He's praying, asking his father that they could have the full measure of his joy. And we're going to get to that in just a second. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. And they are not of the world any more than I am of the world, which is an amazing statement for Jesus to say to these guys. He was not stained or tainted by the world, and yet they were in it, and they were going to fail, and yet he says, they're not part of this mess. I've got them, they're mine. My prayer in verse 15 is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, the, the whole idea of this uh, monastic ivory tower life where you go away to be holy and, and then never interact with the rest of the world is totally unbiblical. The idea of going away and getting recharged and getting filled and fueled so that you can then go out and do what the Lord wants, that's biblical. But Jesus says, don't take them out of the world. I've got work for them to do. But protect them from the evil one, who I assume is Satan. 
He says, they are not of the world again, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. So the Father sent the Son in his character and his mission to do his work, and Jesus completed it utterly. I have sent them into the world in my character and in my mission, which is to go make disciples of all nations. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So you're going to see here, he says, sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, I sanctify myself. So when you have this idea of holiness and then set-apartedness, Jesus does not need to get more holy. So don't read that in there. He's holy. He's perfect. We do. We're on this side of the equation still. And I'll explain that in just a second. But Jesus is saying, I set myself apart from the world. I was in the world, but I was set apart. I had a purpose, and I never let the world get in the way of what God wanted me to do. And he did that so that we could be, that these 11, and I think by inference, other believers, could be truly sanctified. All right, so let's jump into some application. I I think that's a little bit of a, we scratch the surface on some of what that means. So Jesus prays for four things here, right? He prays for protection, unity, joy, and, and sanctification. But I want to just not skim over the fact that this one reality. First, that Jesus is interceding for you, okay? He's prayed for them, but he's also interceding for us. So Hebrews 7.18, excuse me, 7.25, says this. Hebrews is a marvelous, marvelous book. And he says, starting in verse uh, 23, Now there have been many of of these priests, high priests, who were interceding on behalf of the people, but death prevented them from continuing in office. They kept dying, so it was a problem. You had to get another one. But Jesus lives forever, and so he has a permanent priesthood. Hebrews is about Jesus as our high priest. Therefore, because he has a permanent priesthood and lives forever, he's able to save completely those who come to God. We talked about those verses in, in Philippians earlier. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That is an incredible idea that Jesus ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father is interceding for believers. He continues to pray for us. It's marvelous. Why is that important? Well, because it's, a, it's, a, it's one thing for Jesus to say, you're mine. It's another thing for him to do something about it, right? When we are in the grips of our fear, of our frailty, of our failure, it's really good to know that I'm not alone. That Jesus actually notices that I'm fearful. He notices that I'm floundering. He notices that I fail. And he is praying for me. When Jesus asks the Father something, is he going to do it? Yes. It is impossible for Jesus to ask of something outside of the Father's name, outside of his will. He doesn't ask for the Father to do something that God the Father doesn't want to do. Jesus is the perfect intercessor. He never gets tired. He never wears out. He cannot die. And he's praying for every believer. Isn't that marvelous? So when you are struggling, when you are I mean, if you go through a week and don't fail, uh, you should, like, get yourself a card or something, because that would be, I would need to mark that in a highlighter and remember that week forever, because I have yet to have one of those. So every week, day, hour, 
I'm, I fail at something in my walk with Jesus. I am unkind. I am something. I'm constantly uh, confronted by all of my inadequacies as a human. Knowing that Jesus is praying for me means that I can rest in his capacity to finish the work that he began in me. That, was the, that is why Paul was writing those things in Philippians. He was writing them because it's so easy to get discouraged walking with Jesus because we don't do it well all the time. But knowing that I can rest in his capacity, Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He never fails to do it. So second, Jesus is our overflowing joy. So when he says, I pray this so that they may have full measure of my joy, Peter, who very shortly after this, I mean, <laughs> he could easily have recalled exactly what Jesus had just said when he uh, denies him to his face. He says three times, I don't, I don't know who that guy is. Well, Jesus, of course, pursued him, and uh, Pentecost happened. Jesus gets, or Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit, does some good things. Writes a great book, 1 Peter. He wrote another book, 2 Peter. But in 1 Peter 1.7, he's talking to these, uh, these believers. He calls them strangers in the world. They're scattered throughout kind of Asia and Asia Minor now, and persecution is coming to the church. And he says, uh, in these persecutions, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Like grief that like they would be thrown into the, into the Colosseum and eaten by animals. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When we are faithful, it results in praise, glory, and honor of Jesus. It's great. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are what? Filled with what? An inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving as the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. The source of our joy is the reality that God will save us. I can't screw it up. My will cannot thwart his. He is going to bring it to completion. We must believe that. To not believe that means that I am somehow, I've somehow got to do it all right. And I can't. You can't. Nobody can. That's why we have to trust that God is going to save us. But what does that result in? An inexpressible and glorious joy, a joy that is so great that words, we don't have words in our vernacular for it. I can't write a bazillion words for joy. It, there's no words for it. Inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what Jesus wants us to be filled with. If you go back to the cup analogy, right? If you've got this cup, and this cup is you, and you're the cup, right? So you're filled, overflowing, joy is pouring out of it. And someone comes up and bumps you. What's going to fly out of the cup? Joy. You're going to get joy all over everybody. So, wouldn't that be great? And so, however, when someone comes up and either like physically bumps you or, or relationally bumps you or whatever, what comes out? Anger? Bitterness? Frustration? Well, here's the deal, people. Whatever comes out, that's what's inside. And so, when we get bumped in life, and I shout off at one of my kids, blah, 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 blah. 
I'm not full of joy. When they bump me and joy doesn't spill out all over them, something's wrong on my end of things. Where do we get this overflowing joy? Well, it's not a place. Like, you don't have to drive there or fly there. Or, but it is something that we're responsible for. And I think at the intersection of, forgive my metaphor, but at the intersection of like a, a passionate, prayerful life, a life that is praying along the journey, okay? I'm not saying you're doing it perfectly or you're like fasting and praying for two hours a day. I just mean that you are a person who prays, that you're praying. When that intersects with the truth of God's word, those are like filling stations along the way. And you don't have to keep coming back to me. You don't have to like turn around and go, oh, I'm out of gas. You just, when a passionate prayer for life intersects with the truth of God's word, that is where the filling station of unmentionable, inexpressible joy comes from. And I just fail to do it all the time. I just, I'm like, I don't, I don't have time to pray or whatever. Or I, I read the truth of God's word and I just push it away because I don't, I don't, I don't want that. But at, at the intersection of prayer and the truth of God's word, have you ever experienced that? Where you're just, you're praying and you're reading your Bible and you're talking to the Lord and you're reading something, you're reading a psalm or a proverb or Jeremiah or whatever, and you just, you read a truth that God teaches you through word and as you're praying, you're just filled with joy. Like when Jesus says, they may have the full measure of joy. If Jesus prays that, does that, then make it a possibility in our lives? The answer is yes. Yes, it does. Joy is not this sort of bubbly chipperness. It is this, it is based in a relationship with an eternally joyous God. Jesus is my overwhelming joy. It's not my understanding. It's not my capacity. It's not my ability. It is Him he is my joy. And it is when I allow him to live his life through me that I experience his overwhelming joy. And the good thing is it's, it's portable. Like you don't have to pack it up. You just, wherever you are, the Holy Spirit indwells you. So it's easy. You don't have to pack him up and put him in your pocket. You can't forget Jesus. Leave him in the car. He's, uh, he's with you. So that what we need is never far from us. So Jesus is interceding for us. He is our overflowing joy. A third, Jesus is sanctifying us in the truth. So this idea of sanctification, we are, I want you to think about sanctification as, as, as positional sanctification, which is the reality that God sees us as holy. Why? Because he's going to make us holy. And God, being outside of time, sees us as who he's going to make us to be. So we positionally before God are holy before him because we have been given Christ's righteousness, okay? He has taken away our sin and replaced it with Christ's righteousness, right? That's how God sees us, positional sanctification. Over here is practical sanctification, how that gets lived out from the moment of a uh, person becomes a believer till the moment they go to be with Jesus, that is this process of practical sanctification where God is in, he is intentionally making us more like Jesus, right? So what that looks like is that we have this, well, it's just a process. And anybody who's tried to walk with Jesus for long knows that some days you're walking with him fine and other days not so much. But he says to sanctify them by the truth. He is both making us more holy 
removing the blemishes in us, and he is separating us and setting us apart. You as a believer are set apart from the world, not so that you can float above the world and hurl down all of your condemnation on them. That's not our job. Our job is actually to be in it, just like Jesus was, uh, meeting with the hookers and the tax frauds and all of those people and bringing them the gospel. We're supposed to walk the streets of the world, but be unstained by it. It's a core teaching of the New Testament so that Jesus is saying to the Father, sanctify them. By what? Whatever they want? Their feelings? No. The truth. We live in an age that is increasingly hostile to the truth, unless it's a truth that happens to benefit whatever they're wanting to do. We have this idea. I mean, it's so fascinating to me that I have conversations with people who will say, well, that's your truth. It's truth for you. Truth is relative, which is an absolute statement, so it self-defeats itself. But anyway, they say, well, it's true for you. Well, no, it's either true or it's not, right? Like we have conversations about what color a dress is on the internet. And people analyze it and say, well, red is these and blue is, I mean, it's crazy. But man, you have fake news about something, and people get mad on all sides of the aisle. Because we're like, hold on one second. Hold on. Something's got to be true. Even in the lost world, there is this screaming desire to know what is true. Because when someone lies to me, then all of a sudden I can't make a good decision. And people understand that. But when Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, it really means something. Because if the Bible is not true, then nothing is. And we're in the matrix, right? We don't think we know what we're doing. Or The truth of the Bible is that it's absolutely 100% true. Now, I may misunderstand a truth. I may misapply a truth. But the word of God stands true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why is that important? It's important because we must base our identity, who we are, our intellect, how we think, and our lives, how we live. We must base who we are, how we think, and how we live on the unchanging truth of God's Word and not the ever-changing whims of the world. Why? Well, Ephesians talks about it in chapter 4, that people who do that are just blown around by every wind of deceit, winds that change in different directions, like a leaf in Oklahoma in the spring, just blown all over the place because they're not anchored in something that does not change. We live in a world today where people are denying all kinds of truth. And then we so very often tend to just condemn them. Fools, ignorant, how can you deny the truth? Jesus is having to pray for the disciples that they would be sanctified by it. He knows that the constant pull of the world and of the devil is to lure us away from the truth because only the truth can make us holy. And so when we get pulled away from the truth of the word, from the truth of who Jesus is, we just spin off into somewhere. But it's not godliness. And so Jesus is here saying, sanctify them in the truth, Father. Your word is truth. So as you're going throughout your life, as you're praying, do it with the Bible open. Like, read this thing. Memorize it. Know it. Uh, I mean, Genesis 1-1 to the maps. Just do it. Study the word of God. Why? Because it's true, 
And by its truth, Jesus will sanctify you. It's not by your effort of knowing the truth. It's that he works through the medium of it. Prayerfully read the Bible. If you've ever been reading the Bible and you just, you're just praying the Bible for yourself, you're like, I read this, I'm like, Jesus, man, give me the full measure of your joy. Protect me from the evil one. Sanctify me in the truth. It's, it's not some magic formula that you've got to write in a book somewhere. Just do it. But if you try to achieve sanctification apart from the Word of God, well, I don't know where you're going to end up. But it's not going to be godly. Because godliness comes from the Word of God and through His activity in the life of a person. So you must rest in His capacity to sanctify you and to do it through the Word of God. Finally, when He says, As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As Reagan said, make no mistake that we are a sent people. Um, we don't live like it, but we are. Jesus, as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so in his character and in his mission, Jesus had the full character of God the Father walking around in human flesh. I, I can't even fathom that. But like Lazarus, I was in this Bible study this week, and this, this guy said Lazarus walked out from the dead and gave God a hug. I mean, whoa. He was the full and perfect character of God in the full and perfect mission of God, which is to save humanity, to redeem this fallen world. What is our mission? It's to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's it. Now, do we do a lot of things in the process of that? Yes. Why are we joining with Rally to go work at Horace Mann? Why are we trying to help refugee families through, through the Sparrow Project? Is it because it makes you feel good? Is that why I'm constantly pushing you to do that? Go, go, on, go, go. No, it's not because I want you to just do something and feel great. That's good. That You feel good because God made you to serve other people. But the purpose of that is so that when there's some refugee kid who goes to this school and he's never heard the gospel and he comes here and he's like, hey, those Christians really loved me because they gave me a hot dog on the first day of school, that when he hears the gospel, he connects the love of a person with the love of a God and all of a sudden the gospel makes sense because you cannot abort the work of the gospel from the love of its people. Do you understand? We cannot be a people who love God and then just go and tell other people stuff but don't love the people in the middle. When we say love God, love people, and follow Jesus, we did that on purpose because you cannot disconnect the two. Jesus did not walk up to Mary Magdalene, slap her, call her a hooker, and say, now quit sinning. He walked up to her and he loved her in her sin, and then he told her the truth. He went up to the woman at the well and he engaged her in her sin where she was. He didn't come up to her and say, get pretty, you who have five husbands now and I'll come talk to you. He engaged her where she was. He walked up to Zacchaeus, a sinner in a little sinner in a tall tree, right? And said, Zacchaeus, come down. Why? Because I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And everybody was shocked because Jesus was eating with sinners. Do you eat with sinners? Invite them into your house. I mean it. I bet you live next door to a couple. Walk next door and knock on the door. Don't walk up and say, hey, my pastor said to invite a sinner over, so come on over. <laughs> Although, I bet it would be a really interesting conversation. But if you know someone who lives next door to you, and you know that they don't know the Lord because you're a neighbor and you talk while mowing the yard, and if you don't know, go find out. It's just not hard. 
you just find a human, walk up to them and say, hi, human, what is your name? My name is so-and-so. Uh, I'm your neighbor. How are you doing? What about your life? Are you married? Are these your, you know, you don't interrogate them. You just talk to them. Find out about them. You find out that you've got a neighbor who's a Muslim or a burlesque dancer or they're living with their girlfriend or whatever. These are all people who live right by my house. And then you, you actually cut out an evening of your night. You take a kid out of something, you cancel a meeting, and you have them over for dinner so that you can grab your Bible and beat them about the head and neck when they come in. No, you just, you just make enchiladas or you order pizza and you bring a person into your house and you say, hey, neighbor, I'm glad. I want to know you as a person. How are you doing? And in the context of a relationship with that person, you ask, you find out about people and you realize that people need Jesus. And you talk about things like truth and joy and you demonstrate joy in their life and they wonder and you talk to them and you say, do you go to church? No, I don't, I don't. Do you, uh, what do you think about Jesus? Don't ever ask what they think about Christians, by the way, because I don't think that highly of Christians, so they probably don't either. So just, but always ask them, what do you think about Jesus? Always point them to Jesus. Always point them to Jesus. And just do it. Why? Because Jesus is praying for you, one. He's interceding for you as you do that. He is your overflowing joy. So if they come into your house and they just see don't fake it, but if they see these cups of joy that are just dumping joy everywhere, it's really contagious. Because Jesus is sanctifying you in the truth. And one of the ways that he does that is by you obeying what he says when he says to go make disciples of all nations. And the reality that Jesus has sent us out, and so when we live life pulled back and closed off, we're living in disobedience to the Lord of all creation. And there's no dancing around that or saying, oh, well, but, oh, well, but. No, if you're breathing and you're a believer, the Great Commission applies, okay? Some believers have stopped breathing and then gone back to breathing and the Great Commission still applies, like Lazarus. But you, it applies. It doesn't just apply to me. Church is not some spectator sport where you sit up here and watch a guy preach and then go about your business throughout the week. If you're a believer, live like one. Why? Because Jesus is praying for you. He is your inexpressible joy, and he is sanctifying you in the truth. Because those things are true. And if they don't matter in your life, if they don't change how we live, then the gospel loses all of its power. Are you with me? Do you, is it making any sense? Oh, Jesus, he just keeps saying hard things, doesn't he? And when we approach him, and when we approach the word, and we come to him and say, Jesus, change who I am, Amazing things happen. So, as we just close here, all this stuff is real. I, uh, reconciliation between believers is real. Actual joy, overflowing joy is real. Being less like Jesus and then years later being more like Jesus, that's real. Some missionaries that we knew in Guatemala, that David and Helen Ekstrom, they translated three Bibles into Mayan languages, and, and when we first got there, they were in their, like, mid-70s. Like, they carried their stuff across a river in 1950. I mean, they were unbelievable people. And when they came and they visited us when we first moved, and we had uh, two little kids at the time, and, and they just spent time with us. 
And they would just drive. They drove several hours and, and hung out with us for two or three hours and then drove home. And after they left, Jenny and I were just sitting there going, man, that was, gosh, that was, what? We didn't have words. And then finally Jenny just goes, I feel like I just spent three hours with Jesus. Because David and Helen had just walked with Jesus for so long that they were more like him than I have ever known another person to be like. And so being around them was as refreshing and life-giving as it was being around Jesus. That's the reality of community. That's the reality of the Word of God transforming the heart of a person. And I want desperately for this church to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not so that we can sit up in our ivory tower and, and figure everything out, but so we can get out and teach that truth to a broken world. It's desperately in need of us. Why do you think Jesus sent them out? Because everything was fine? No. He sent them out because the world needed to hear the gospel. And Jesus wanted them to hear it through the lives and the mouths of his chosen believers. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Um, I just come before you just humbly, Lord. And I, I confess before my brothers and sisters that I don't do this well. I have to be reminded, I have to be reminded to, that you're interceding for me, I have to be reminded that you are my overflowing joy, that you're sanctifying me in the truth, and that you've sent me out. Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to take the truth of what you've taught us, to apply it to our life, and would you empower us to do it? Help us to rest in your capacity to sanctify us. Help us as your people go out in your character and with your mission and to love much and love well as we take this gospel to the one, to the city, and the world. In your risen name we pray.